It's good to see you here again today. And my name's Lloyd, I'm one of the, the pastors here. Well, I say uh, one of the pastors, I'm going to try some jokes on you, so maybe I could think of a different prof uh, profession at some point soon as well. Now, let me try this. We've been practicing uh, uh, jokes at our dinner table. So here's my first attempt. Uh, what, do you, what do scary pandas eat? What do scary pandas eat? Um, boo. <laughs> right? Good, good. Well, you'll be glad to hear that um, you'll be seeing me at a comedy club anytime soon, but that's okay. I, I prefer this anyway. Um, we're going to look at today um, fear in the wilderness. And now, while I'm sharing some of um, what's going on in our Bible passage, which we've had read, I have a special job for our St. Pete's kids who are here today. Your special job is this to draw a picture of our Bible story as creatively, as colorfully as you would like. And then at the end of our service, uh, you have an opportunity, but only if you would like uh, to share with us and we can kind of celebrate that and, uh, and make you feel good about your drawing together. Um, our sermon series is about the wilderness and how God sustains us even there. And we're gonna center in on fear today. Fear is not really the best topic for jokes, I must admit. Or maybe it is because you either laugh or, or you cry. What are you scared of? What have you been scared of in this season? What do you fear? When I was young, like most kids, I was scared of, of the dark. I couldn't watch scary films um, either, even things like Ghostbusters, which are only slightly scary. I'm older now and I'm scared less or scared differently. It's not things that go bump in the night, but things that kind of go bump in life, in the wilderness of life that bump up against me, against us. What about you? What's been your fear in this season? We're gonna look this morning at how God intervenes amidst fear and despite fear to save, and how he did that with the Israelite people in Exodus 14. So do have that open in front of you if you can. Um, there's no real excuse. You've got phones and things, so please do have it open if, if you're able to do that, and I'll pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are God, that you're good, and that your love endures forever. We pray this morning that you would speak to us by your spirit, that uh, whatever is of you would, would um, be burned into our hearts, what's of me would just fall by the wayside, and that you would be our comforter, our strength, um, our hope in, in times of trouble. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to look at three different types of fear today. We're going to do it through three points. Uh, the dangers of fear, the layers of fear, and then the wonders of fear. So the dangers of fear, the layers of fear, and then the wonders of fear. The dangers of fear, first of all, then. There are a couple of dangers when it comes to fear. The first is this. What you see is what you fear. What you see is what you fear. Or in other words, the biggest thing that's right in front of your face is what you fear the most. Look at verse 10 with me. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. The sound of the chariots, the neighs of the horses, the cries of the army, the rhythm of the marching, they all come closer. It's scarier than, than, than a scene in Lord of the Rings. The, the, this makes the, the Israelites shake with great fear. They are scared, terrified, 
they are crying to their mothers and they're needing their, their stuffies. There's a scared kind of fear going on here. Now, all this feels uh, quite understandable, this scared fear, especially if you look at the background of what's going on. Exodus uh, begins just as Israel is being formed as a people. Joseph and his technicolor dream coat and his technicolor dream interpretation saved himself from prison and he rose to the highest position um, just behind Pharaoh. His plan to save food uh, during plenty in order to prepare for famine had saved Egypt as well. And amazingly, it saved his brothers too, who had tried to kill him and his father Jacob. Uh, their family moves to Egypt and they grow in number, they grow exponentially. And so this happens at the beginning of Exodus, Exodus chapter 1. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with many burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more the Israelites multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You see, the Egyptians were scared of this growing number of Israelite people. So what do they do? They rule with fear. They make them scared. They try to kill the male babies that were born uh, to the Israelites. They enslave them. They dehumanize them. Notice how fear begets fear. I'm scared, so I'm going to make you scared. Fear that is not transformed inevitably gets transmitted. We see that in our world, don't we? God hears the cry of his people and says he's going to come and do something about it. And so he does. And it's the greatest um, escape act that you've ever seen. Forget the Italian job, whether that's the old version or the new version, or even Ocean's 11 or 12 or 13 or 27, whatever we're up to now. This is the best escape job that's ever been. The Lord uses the hand of his servant Moses to bring about the 10 plagues that eventually force the hand of Pharaoh, who eventually lets the people go. In the middle of the night, the people of Israel flee Egypt. But before they're actually free, they come to the waters and they have another obstacle, Pharaoh's chariots of war. Pharaoh says this, what is it that we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he gathers his chariot. Now chariots uh, were the high-tech kind of machinery, the military of the day. He orders 60, 600 of the top of the range chariots to chase after the people of Israel. It would have been like a pack of wolves um, chasing after a scared rabbit. Notice how the passage repeats reference to Pharaoh, his horses, his chariots, his horsemen, and his army. It kind of says that lots of different times. It just reinforces that there are so many of them, and they just keep coming. God directs Moses to go an unexpected direction to confuse Pharaoh. It feels like a strange move. God orders Moses and Israel to go an unexpected direction to a surprising place, to a place by the sea. Now, if you're running away from people, um, 
going to the sea is not that great an idea, right? Unless you've got a boat or a lifeboat or a cruise liner or something lined up ready for you, like going to the water is not a good idea. They've left Israel with just um, what they had with them. And none of that really was to defend themselves or to get into the water. So they have water on one side and Pharaoh's chariots and wolves on the other side. This is not a good situation, folks, is it? This is a scared kind of fear that they have. And what happens when we have this kind of fear is that the biggest thing in front of you is what you fear the most. It's right in front of their faces. They can hear it. They can see it. They can see the marching and the chariots coming towards them. What you see is what you fear. But the other danger is this. What you see is all that you see. What you see is all that you see. And so the Israelites forget the purposes and promises of God. He's told them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save you. I'm going to let my people go. But they forget that. They go a bit crazy and delusional. And their sense of what is real kind of goes hazy. Listen to them. They cry out to the Lord and they say to Moses, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians and to die in the wilderness. Were there not enough um, graves in, in, in Egypt for us to die in? Why have you taken us out here? You're crazy. In their scared fear, they seem to forget about what they're escaping from. In their trauma, all they can see is what's right in front of them. All that they can see is all that they see. They cannot see the bigger picture, right? The purposes and promises of God are way back, back, back in the background, while in front of their eyes, Pharaoh's army and the chariots are very much in the foreground. The problem with this kind of scared fear is that it neglects God. Because it focuses on what's right in front of them at that time, they actually neglect and fun functionally forget God. I wonder if that rings any bells for you right now this kind of functional forgetting of God need not be deliberate. It need not be um, purposeful. We live in a strange kind of age, don't we? Not just with the pandemic, but even before then, we live in a paradox. We live in a world that's safer than really any other society in history, yet protected like never before, we are fearful and anxious. Perhaps a sacred fear, the scared fear that is characteristic of our age has come as we've kind of squeezed God into the background while everything else is into the foreground. We've squeezed him so far out of the picture, he's not really in the picture anymore. The scared fear neglects God as even there. There is a bigger picture, however. There is the danger of, of um, scared fear, but there's more. There are also more layers of fear as well. So let's look at the second point now, the layers of fear. So there are two more references in our passage to fear. Let's look at these. And the first one is in verse 13. Moses says to the people, fear not, fear not. Okay. He says, don't fear like this. We're going to come back to uh, these verses um, at the end here. But after that, God instructs the people to go forward. He tells Moses to lift up his staff, to stretch it out over the sea and to divide it so that the people of Israel may go uh, through the sea on dry ground. And the, the, 
the chasing Egyptians would get engulfed in the water. So the angel of God goes before them and behind them, from behind them, um, from before them to behind them. And um, he lights up the Israelites' way and darkens uh, the Egyptians' way. And they get to the sea, and as Moses stretches out his hand, a strong wind uh, divides the sea. Now for my second joke, I saw a joke this week that I thought was perfect for this sermon, but then I was told that it might be more um, UK specific than I first realized. You can tell me, okay? How do you cut the ocean in half? How do you cut the ocean in half? It's not actually a real question, it's a joke. I'm just not very good at delivering them, I'm afraid. What divides an ocean in half? A seesaw. A seesaw? Apparently um, in Canada and in North America, they're called teeter-totters. Is that right? Or do you, do you know seesaw as well? That's good, okay, it worked. Good, good, I'm glad. Um, teeter-totter is a bit of a mouthful, I, I must admit. Seesaw works. Seesaw, but of course, seesaws don't divide waters into teeter-totters don't. It wouldn't make sense. Nothing really makes sense sense here. It doesn't usually happen, right? It's a crazy sight to see wall of water on one side and a wall of water on another. It would have been windy and disorientating. The Israelites walk on dry ground to the other side of the water. It says in verse 20, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And as the Egyptians follow after them, the Lord looks down, and as morning comes, perhaps so that they can see what's going on, the Egyptians are engulfed by the waters. Moses stretches out his hand again, and they are covered by the waters. From seeing the scary power of the Israelite and the Egyptian army coming towards them, they now see something different. They see something different. Verse 30 says this, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Notice what they now saw and what they then feared. They saw the Egyptians, every last one of their enemies who'd been trying to kill them, who'd been trying to kill their, their, their firstborn, um, their, their males, on the seashore, and they see the great saving power of God. They see their deliverance, their salvation, their rescue enacted right in front of their eyes. And so the people feared the Lord. Now, I thought we weren't supposed to fear. Didn't, didn't Moses say, fear not? So it's important to realize that there are two more kinds of fear. We've talked about a scared fear, but there's also a sinful kind of fear and um, a sacred fear too. Let me talk about these. While the Israelites felt scared fear when they looked up and saw Pharaoh's army, it's possible also to have um, a scared fear when it comes to God. This scared fear as it relates to God, we're going to call a sinful fear. This kind of fear drives us away from God. This is the kind of fear that, that we see Adam has when he first sinned and he hides from God. It's the kind of fear that James um, in the New Testament tells us that demons have when they believe in God and shudder. This sinful fear is of dread and of retreating from God. It's a kind of fear that says, I don't believe in God and I hate him. 
a scared kind of fear that's found in atheism, but a sinful kind of fear can be found in theism and religion too. This has a view of God as harsh and dreadful, who's a slave driver like Pharaoh. And with this view of God, uh, people feel like they need to please and obey and appease him, but secretly they despise him. This kind of sinful fear drives us away from God. It rejects God. It rejects God as good. So scared fear neglects God as there, but sinful fear rejects God as good. Thankfully, there's another kind of fear, a kind of fear of God, and we're going to call that a sacred fear today. It can be seen in that final verse. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is in contrast with the other two fears in our passage. This is celebrated and comes from seeing the great power of God and results in belief and in trust. And this is um, celebrated really throughout the Bible. Um, Those of you who are familiar with the Bible and have have read in the past, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A fear of the Lord uh, brings delight. This fear of the God of God does not mean some sort of cringing, servile fear of punishment, but it's an attitude of awe in our hearts, a trembling before the greatness of God. It's awe of God, but not just awe in his power, it's awe of his great power and his great love. And so Moses connects the fear of God with love and obedience in um, Deuteronomy 10. And now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways and to love him? Now, how do we do this? How do we have a fear that, that, that loves God? How does this work? How does this happen? Well, let's finish with our final point. We've had the dangers of fear, the levels of fear, and now the wonder of fear. Scared fear neglects God as there. Sinful fear rejects God as good. And finally, sacred fear exalts God as Savior. Verse 13 says this, Fear not, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you only have to be silent. Moses says to the people, don't just look at what's in front of your face. Don't just look at the Egyptians who are there. They are temporary. They are finite. They are just people. You won't see them ever again. Don't have scared fear. Fear not. But he also seems to imply, don't have a sinful fear too. God the all-powerful is not just all-powerful for power's sake. He is all-powerful for his glory, and he is good. He will work salvation today. Don't have a sinful fear that runs from him. Go to him, fear not. But Moses says, finally, have this sacred fear. He is all-powerful for his glory and for your good. He will bring salvation today, not just salvation though, salvation for you today. That's what he's telling the Israelite people. He's looking them in the eye saying, this is happening for you. The Lord will fight for you. Fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of God. See the Lord as Savior and you'll begin to have this sacred fear. You see, when we see the salvation of the Lord, we have sacred fear because we truly see what's going on Um, behind the scenes, behind what we see right in front of us. When we have sacred fear, we begin to see things truly. We see ourselves and God in a healthy perspective. 
Can you imagine for a moment um, seeing the Red Sea right in front of you? If you've not been to the Red Sea, you can just think of just being by the water's edge, right? Here in Vancouver, we have beautiful uh, views of that. Red Sea right in front of you. The next minute, you see it divided into two and becoming two walls of water. The height of that water must have been, it must have been bigger than this building. Can you imagine walking through a wind strong enough to divide water like that, holding onto your hat, uh, your clothes, your scarves, your children, your, your friends, not being able to say anything to them because the wind is so strong? What would you have felt? I think I would have felt very small. I'm quite tall, all for a Chinese person. Um, when I go to Hong Kong, I'm super tall, actually. Um, but anyway, I feel tall, but in that setting, you'd feel small, wouldn't you? But that's okay. That's kind of the point. It was salvation that God was working. It was the Lord who was fighting. He's the one who needs to be big in this situation. They were simply to stand, to see, and to be silent. But having this sacred fear is truly seeing. It's not just seeing that we are small, but that God is God and I am not. It's seeing that God is big, gloriously big. I wonder when was the last time you looked at a mountain or some stars and thought, wow, I feel so small. This world, this universe is huge. When was the last time that you did that? Let me just speak a little that speaks to the measure of how big this world is. One of uh, my son Joey's friends claimed that he had counted uh, to a, a billion recently. Um, now, kids do that, right? You say you've, you've counted to 10, they say 100, and then they keep going to a billion. One said he had counted to a billion. Kindergarten kids, eh, right? Well, I thought I would look this up for fun because I thought that's going to take a long time. To count to a billion with one second per number would take how many years? Can you just think in your mind? How many years would it take to count one, two, three, four, five? Let's shout out. How many years do you think? Two, ten, thirty years it would take to count to a billion from uh, one to a billion. That's a lot, right? And so there are billions of um, stars in our galaxy, and there are billions, maybe hundreds and thousands of billions of galaxies in this universe. That's a lot. I think it's easy to feel small. I felt small when I was in Tibet and approaching Mount Everest in 2005, and we got to the base camp there. The mountain itself wasn't that big, but it's the tallest mountain in the world because it starts so high, right? And so what made me feel small was the change in the air and really not being able to breathe, suddenly thinking, okay, I can feel that I'm high up here. There's something different about it being up here, waking up and gasping for breath and having ringing headaches there. But feeling small in itself is, is, is not actually that comforting. That bigness is only comforting um, when that bigness has something else, I think. Grandeur by itself brings awe and fear, but what kind of fear? It might do different things for us. But grandeur with tenderness, I think, does something to us. It begins to bring wonder. As our smallness is brought into the grand and tender gloriousness of God, we begin to think, really? Me? But that bigness 
is concerned with what's going on in your heart, knows the number of hairs on your head, the numbers that are going gray or not. He knows our heart. He's big. The smallness of our, our, our lives and of our fears and of our hearts are not too small for him. My earliest childhood memory is of being in the living room of my house in Glasgow in Scotland after one of my close family members died. I was about three or four, and I can picture what I was wearing. I felt lost and scared. I felt small. But in my memory, no one came to be big in that situation. There's no blame there. It was either my grandma who, who died very suddenly or, or my little brother who was three months old. So everyone was distraught. But my smallness, without any other bigness, kind of led to a scared fear. That was the kind of lens through which I looked out of my life. A scared fear, sometimes a sinful fear, I would say. But it's beginning to become a, a sacred fear, a fear that points me to someone bigger, to something bigger, to someone bigger, as I allow Jesus to pick me up in my mind's eye, to tell me that it's not my fault, that it's okay, that I didn't understand what's going on, that he's with me, that he's got me, that he had me then, that he's got me now. He's big enough to hold me. He's big enough to handle my fear. And as I begin to realize this slowly but surely, I don't fear and be scared and, and have that sinful fear as much. I realize that fear is a guide but not a God. And I begin to realize, and this is a little um, quote from a writer called Anne Voskamp, you can feel fear, but you don't have to be afraid of being afraid. When you aren't afraid of being afraid, you transform fear into a friend. Feelings get to accompany you, but they don't get to control you. Feelings get to inform you, but they don't get to form you. Feelings get to keep you company, but they don't get to keep you in bondage. Only God himself keeps you, cups you, carries you. See the salvation of the Lord, which he works for you today. The Lord will fight for you, so you only have to be silent. Sacred fear comes when we see the salvation of the Lord in his bigness and our smallness, and we begin to exalt him. We begin to praise him. We begin to be still in wonder. God is in heaven and we are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. But he doesn't remain there. He comes to be with us, to be for us. We have sacred fear when we see reality, truly, how small we are, how big God is in his salvation, how little we need to do and how much he has done for us, then that becomes bigger than what's directly in front of our faces. We can begin to, to set that aside, to move it to the side. So what's in front of your face right now? Where are you in relation to the, the wilderness? Are you feeling hemmed in, a bit hopeless? Surrounded by enemies, perhaps, evil right in front of your face, ready to go back to your old ways or the old slave drivers. What if God has a different route than you'd expect? A surprising salvation that he wants to work in, in your heart through what's going on in your life. What if 
you are to stop, to stand firm, to look and listen today, to be still enough, to be silent before him, before your situation, before yourself, and listen to his heart for you. What would it look like for you to take a step of faith today? Because as the Israelites walked through on that dry ground, there would have been different types of people, right? On one extreme, um, some of them would have walked through thinking, this water is going to collapse at any minute. We need to hurry up and run through because this is not good. Look at it. That's not normal, right? They'd be running and kind of scared as they were going through. And other people would have been skipping along and kind of like, sweet, God is amazing. Look, he's done all these things with, with the Egyptians. We're obviously going to go through. We're obviously going to get to the other side. How they felt was different, these groups of people. And yet, when they got to the other side, was one more saved than the other? No, they were both saved, right? Taking a step of, of faith today is a way to respond to what God is doing. God achieved this salvation for them, but, but they had to take a step um, of faith. So sacred fear is cultivated when we see beyond this event um, in Exodus as a pattern and template for future events. In the rest of the, the, the Hebrew Bible and then later on in the New Testament, um, this is a paradigm, a, a pattern for how God works, how he saves, how he brings freedom, how he liberates people. With spiritual eyes, we can kind of see that this is what God wants to do and what he has done. And Nancy Guthrie, a commentator, puts it like this. The Hebrew word that Moses uses for Lord in verse 13 means the Lord saves. Yeshua. And this makes sense to us because we know that the salvation of God is bound up in a person. The person giving the name Yeshua, Jesus himself. And when we hear the word of Jesus, the salvation of the Lord, and respond in faith, we are united to the greater Moses. And like the Israelites, we pass from death to life. Jesus describes salvation um, in exactly these terms, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In opening up the Red Sea to make a way through death for his people, God was showing how he would miraculously make a way through death for all those who would come to him by faith through his son, Jesus Christ. While Moses stretched um, out his arms over the sea to make way for his people, Jesus stretched out his arms on the cross to make a way for us. While Moses plunged into the waters of the Red Sea and all those who followed him emerged on the other side unscathed, Christ plunged into the waters of death so that following him we might pass through this unscathed to resurrection life. While the waters of the Red Sea destroyed Pharaoh and his armies, when Moses stretched out his hand, Jesus brought destruction on the devil, on evil, which was nailed to the cross, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. The sea that people feared became the means of their deliverance and salvation from the Egyptians. Likewise, the physical death that we fear becomes the means of our deliverance into the promised land of God's presence. We need not fear death. Our deliverer has raised his rod and we can pass through on dry ground unscathed. When the day comes for you to stand on that shore or as you stand with those you love when they come to the end of this life, hear him say to you, fear not, stand still 
and see the salvation of our Lord. Their wonder of sacred fear is this, it's a holy fear. Instead of neglecting God and rejecting him, we learn to exalt him as savior, as my savior, as your savior, to find our smallness wrapped in the bigness of his love and of his salvation now and forever. Amen.